Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Stats of War podcast, a half-hour deep dive into the numbers behind the numbers, a statistical wandering through the past week's sports happenings. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, resident sports analytics wonk at Frogs of War, and over the next half hour, I'll take you through the most important numbers of the past week in TCU athletics. I'll use three numbers to guide our discussion this week, and here they are, 59.3, 0.342, and plus 3%. Our first number, 59.3, is going to kick off a segment about TCU basketball. Well, in principle, it's going to be a segment about TCU basketball. In reality, it is going to be a love letter to Quatnoy, and I think a compelling statistical argument as to why TCU fans should also love Quatnoy. So 59.3 is the points per game TCU has scored over the three conference games where Quatnoy has been absent. TCU is 0-3 in those games, a loss to Oklahoma State, a loss to Oklahoma, and a loss to Kansas State. Before we get into the specifics of Quat, I'll do a little recap of TCU's current standing, uh, according to everyone's favorite analytics system, KenBomb.com. Go subscribe. I wish I got a commission, but I don't, but it is worth it. So TCU is currently 42nd in KenPom. Their offense is a little bit low below where we would expect it to be, uh, 48th in the nation right now with an offensive efficiency of 111.2. Uh, last season for reference, TCU was ninth in the nation in offense, and that has been a little bit of a disappointment this year to see that potential for hyper-efficient offense struggle. That disappointing offense has been a primary culprit in TCU's 2019 slide down the Ken Palm rankings, falling 27 spots since the new year. In the last week, though, TCU is up one spot to 42nd, and they went one and one with a disappointing loss, one that they probably should have won against Oklahoma State and Stillwater, and uh, a pretty surprising win against a very competitive Iowa State team, an Iowa State team ranked 13th in Ken Palm. TCU now has a season sweep. And in fact, according to the net and Ken Palm, those are the only two A tier or quadrant one wins that TCU has all season. Very valuable for TCU's tournament resume. Uh, TCU is 41st in the net, the NCAA's measurement tool, which is more or less a recreation of Ken Palm, but just adjusted a little bit that the NCAA in theory takes into account, but also the selection committee does whatever it wants as well. So the net is a number. It means something. We don't know what that is yet because although we've had the midseason reveal, what we haven't had is an actual year of comparison for us to figure out how RPI's successor is going to fare. Uh, I've seen that TCU is projected uh, as an eight seed versus Wofford or as a 10 seed versus Buffalo. Now, I certainly have an opinion about which I would like to see. Uh, Specifically, I would like to not be in that eight or nine game. I think I mentioned that last week. Wofford is 26th in Ken Palm. They play mostly man, which is good for TCU because TCU struggled against zone defenses. We remember the tournament appearance versus Syracuse last year and a game versus Eastern Michigan this year where they played that zone defense and struggled early on to figure out what they wanted to do. Now, Wofford's an interesting team. They're kind of a darling. They've been ranked here and there throughout the season. They have lost most of their marquee games. They lost to North Carolina, Oklahoma, Kansas, Mississippi State. But they have some pretty solid wins in the non-conference 
at South Carolina, for instance, and a couple of quality conference wins at East Tennessee State and at Furman. So Wofford in the eight seed would be a game I do not want to play. They shoot 41.3% from the three, which is third in the nation. So that looks like a, a difficult matchup that I'd like to avoid. Buffalo, on the other hand, is kind of a media darling as well. And they might be in that seven seed range just because I don't see them losing. They're projected to win the rest of their games. They got off to a great start beating West Virginia in overtime in Morgantown, which looked like a bigger win than it was at the time and kind of floated them until they got to Syracuse and took advantage of a stumbling Syracuse team. So between the West Virginia win and the Syracuse win, Buffalo has a couple notches on its belt that are pretty impressive. They have lost to Marquette um, and Bowling Green, both away, which were explainable losses, but less than ideal. They do have a glaring Northern Illinois loss. Northern Illinois is 143rd in Ken Palm. Um, and so Buffalo does have some slips on its resume, but they uh, also play mostly man. Uh, and they play very fast tempo. They also allow a lot of assists, which is good, especially for a Jamie Dixon team and a team that has Alex Robinson as its point guard, because let's be fair, Alex Robinson can throw the ball around. So assist heavy, high tempo, a lot of turnovers, mostly man defense. I would much rather see Buffalo than Wofford in the tournament. That's just my two cents. That's not what this segment is about, though. Let's get back to what I'm here for, which is Quatnoy. The man, the myth, the legend, TCU's own Australian wonder kid, Quatnoy. Quatnoy has been a staple of the TCU team. And with with Quat on the floor, TCU is a different team. Their ceiling is high and it's weird, but it's very good. Quat has really benefited the team. Uh, like I mentioned for this number, they have averaged 59.3 points per game in the three losses in the three games in conference that he did not play in conference games with Quatnoy, TCU's averaging 74 points per game. So 15 points more with Quat in the lineup and in losses without, or in losses with Quatnoy, they're averaging 55 and in wins, they're averaging 77.1 points. So TCU with Quatnoy has a higher range of outcomes, but without adjusting for opponent or anything, we can just see TCU is obviously better with Quatnoy. So why is Quatnoy so great? Let's talk about him. Noy is currently ranked 237th in the nation in offensive rating. That's ninth in the conference, the ninth most offensively valuable player in the Big 12. Quatnoy is shooting 38.4% from three, which is good enough for 12th in the Big 12 and 384th nationally. So he's at least on a national radar as a three-point shooter and a very, very good one in the Big 12. His two-point percentage is 55.7%, which is 21st in the Big 12. So all over the court, Quat is one of the elite shooters of the Big 12 and one of the top-tier shooters in the nation. He's had an offensive rating of over 100 eight times in conference and in all non-conference games except Lipscomb, which again, correlation doesn't apply causation, but Quatnoy had an off game and TCU lost to Lipscomb, a team they could beat. In fact, Quatnoy has been held to single digits two times all season. 
First was the aforementioned Lipscomb loss, where he was held to four points, was one from seven from three, and missed a free throw to boot, but he did have nine rebounds. Um, And so only four points in that Lipscomb loss. But then against Baylor, the first game of Big 12 conference play, he only had nine points on three of four from the field and one for three from the three-point line. So you have to think that Baylor even uh, had some had some film to say we need to we need to guard Noy or account for him. Um, but so Quat shooting 38% from three, 55% from two, his absence is absolutely felt in the three games that he was not there. Versus Oklahoma State, TCU shot 27.8% from the three and 51.4% from the two. OU, in the game against OU, they shot 28.1% from three and 42% from the field. And against Kansas State, they shot 25% from three and 60% from the field. So better two-point performance, but still, Quatnoy's absence as a three-point maker was palpable in all three of those games, especially when you consider that TCU lost uh, all three of these games by about three scores. Oklahoma State was a seven-point loss. Oklahoma was a nine-point loss. And Kansas State was a 10-point loss. Quatnoy makes 2.5 threes per game which is uh, 12th in the conference in shooting. And so you can actually see tangibly, again, extrapolation is very dangerous and we can't say, we can't hold everything constant and say, oh yes, if we put Quatnoy in this game, history's ergodic, it's a pattern, we can just throw it in there and everything would have been different. But TCU could have really benefited from three threes, almost three threes in any one of those games. And all three of those games are ones you'd like to have back. Honestly, think about, just getting two of those games. You win the Oklahoma State game that you should have, and then you get one of Kansas at home or Kansas State away, probably Kansas at home even, let's say that. And then you're looking at a TCU team that is 19 and 7, now 20 and 7 instead of 18 and 9. They're ahead of the curve in the conference, and that would have changed a lot. So we really felt uh, it would have changed a lot in terms of TCU's postseason resume in terms of what they're going to have to do in the tournament, the Big 12 tournament, to get a seed that involves not a play-in game. Additionally, uh, they're going to have to win to try and stay out of that 7-10, 8-9 game, which is always dangerous, which is something I've said about 14 times now, but it's true. The absence of Quatnoy is is just so notable, especially in those three crucial games that TCU lost. The other key area where we see the loss of Quatnoy is in turnovers. Quatnoy is boasting a turnover rate of 10.5%, which is 84th in the nation. 84th in the nation. Uh, and third in the Big 12. Quatnoy gets the ball a lot, but he does not turn the ball over. And TCU on the whole for this season had 18.7 turnovers a game. Against Oklahoma State, they had 14. Against OU, they had 12. Against Kansas State, they had 18. So all of those were technically below the season average, but all of those were well in the double digits. And double-digit turnovers are a result of sloppy play. And again, we see Quatnoy's importance to this team. So there's my statistical love letter to Quatnoy. He does not turn the ball over. He shoots the three. He shoots the two. Is a complete game changer. And TCU had a Quatnoy hole shaped in its heart in those three conference losses. Now that he's back and healthy, TCU's uh, got a better shot to take care of business. And you feel more comfortable going to Morgantown on Tuesday. You feel more comfortable with Texas coming in town next week. 
uh, excuse me, with Kansas State coming in town next week and then Texas to end the season. That Texas Tech game, I don't, don't get your hopes up on that one. But TCU is favored, uh, according to Ken Palm, to beat West Virginia, to beat Kansas State. And that Texas game, it's a close loss. With Quatnoy, that changes the equation. I think because these advanced stats systems aren't as sensitive to uh, performance outliers, and TCU without Quatnoy is certainly a, a performance outlier. The team looks lost without that extra option, which is not to minimize anything that Kendrick Davis has done, not to minimize anything that Alex Robinson and J.D. Miller have done and how they stepped up and how Kevin Samuel has being a grown man. But if if TCU could get Quatnoy healthy, which he is, and get Desmond Bain clicking and get a draw in the tournament that does not involve zone teams or elite zone defenses, TCU has a chance. Uh, they have the talent, depending on the draw, conditional on the draw, they have the talent to move into the second round, certainly. All right, that brings us up to the halfway point of our show, more or less. So I'm going to go ahead and take a little break here. And when I come back, I will discuss the final two numbers of the week. All right, let's dive back in, shifting our gears to TCU baseball. Our second number of the week is 342 or .342, which is TCU's batting average on balls in play, referred to as some by BABIP, but I refuse refuse to use that abbreviation because I think it sounds hilarious and is very confusing. So we'll stick to BABIP, which is a lot more fun to say. TCU baseball went 3-1 and one last week. They had wins over Abilene Christian and Grand Canyon University. This was a tune-up week. TCU took care of the business. It should have. They remained steady at 18th in the D1 baseball poll, which is my preferred poll because Kendall Rogers and Aaron Fitt are um, very knowledgeable, very sharp guys. They watch uh, a lot of the games and are basically computer rankings in themselves with how often they take in games. So I trust that one. TCU remains 18th in that poll. That puts them at third in the Big 12. Right now, Texas Tech uh, is third overall. Baylor is 15th. And then Oklahoma State and Texas are looming just behind TCU at 19th and 22nd. So here early in the season, we have five Big 12, te- Big 12 teams in the top 22. And as conference play shakes out, we'll see kind of how those teams interact. But I think that's a pretty good bet for the top four teams in the Big 12. And you're postseason participants from the Big 12 this year. So TCU has now scored double digits in four of its five wins on the season, and they have allowed 25 runs over those seven games, and they've yet to shut out a team, which some of that is a function of playing a really tough schedule. Some of that is a function of being up and letting younger guys and not exactly your high leverage pitchers in. Uh, but you would have liked to see TCU give somebody the business. They kind of did. Uh, they 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 kind of did to Vanderbilt and kept Vanderbilt to two runs. And if you're going to weight that versus team quality, keeping Vanderbilt to two runs is effectively a shutout. But that'll be interesting to keep tabs on. Last week we talked about FIP in baseball, fielding independent pitching, and looked at how the fielding or the ERA was below FIP for last week and in that opening series. Uh, but that really was attributable to Nick Lodolo giving up a home run. All in all, I think that we'll come back to FIP because it's a great stat. And so early in the season, it's really volatile and it doesn't really tell us a ton. This week, though, I do want to go to that 3-4-2 number. 
Batting average on balls in play, BABIP, B-A-B-I-P, is a way to tell the frequency with which a player gets on base when he puts the ball in play. Um, I think this is important because it just measures uh, non-home run batted balls uh, for hits. And so there's a couple things that factor into whether a ball is a hit. One of that is the quality of contact. So Major League Baseball now has StatCast and TrackMan and all this nonsense everywhere where you can see, you know, to the fraction of degree, how did a ball come off of a bat and to where it went? So they have these amazing expected statistics that say, all right, a ball was hit to this section of the field at this angle at this speed 98 times and 96% of the time it was a hit. So we're going to credit you with an expected hit of 0.96 instead of one or instead of zero if you get out. So it kind of isolates uh, the batter's performance. We don't have those numbers. Uh, Allegedly, they were doing the stat cast for the MLB4 tournament, but the MLB4 tournament wasn't on TV anywhere and those numbers didn't appear to be online. So maybe they just said it or maybe they kept it all internal and are still collecting data on college players. Who knows? But that data doesn't seem to be anywhere. So we don't have that data for college, but we do have... Uh, BABIP, B-A-B-I-P. I can't decide. I've said I'm not going to say it, but I can't decide. I want to stick with B-A-B-I-P. The, so it's a function of players' ability and how their quality of contact. It's also a function of defense and defensive execution. So a really low BABIP could be an indicator that you're hitting weak contact, but it also could be an indicator that you're hitting against a shortstop who is a monster and just getting every ball or have a couple lucky hits. Um, additionally, it is a function of what I just said, luck. So three things kind of go into Babbitt, which is quality of contact, uh, opponent defense, and luck. So why do we care about Babbitt? Well, it helps us diagnose. It's a diagnostic tool. Um, I talked about this in a post last fall about fumbles and looking at how we think about fumbles and considering them in terms of rates. BABIP was my example because BABIP in itself doesn't mean a lot. TCU's team has a BABIP of 0.342. What does that mean? I wish that I could tell you exactly what that means because it means, well, 34.2% of the time when they hit the ball into the field, it goes for a hit. But for individual players, what that can help us do is see what's going on. Specifically, I wanted to look at Dak Humphreys and his slow start. So Zach Humphreys hit two home runs the other day and so is uh, potentially turning things around, but has gotten off to a pretty slow start this season. His individual BABIP is a hilarious zero. Now that's kind of unfair, but it is actually it is actually true because he's had 15 at-bats and two of his hits have been home runs and the rest have been outs or strikeouts. So he struck out twice, he's gotten one walk, But the 13 times that he has put the ball in play, he has not gotten a hit. What tells you what's going on there? Or what does this tell us about what's going on with Humphreys? Well, it could tell us a couple things. It could tell us that if hypothetically he was hitting a lot of fly balls, it could tell us that he's struggling in the parks he's played in to drive the power or perhaps his power's off. He's hitting a lot of ground balls though. And so that indicates that he might be hacking, feeling the pressure, trying to put the ball in play more, which is going to, of course, lead to more higher volume of 
outs made, even if it does lead to more hits. And so I think that's kind of the case is, is Humphreys is just pressing. And we see that his, um, he is not, he's putting the ball in, I mean, what, 13 times? Three, so two home runs and oh, two strikeouts. So 11 times he's been to the plate and done absolutely nothing. Uh, he did start with an 0 for 11 stretch. So hopefully he is um, turning the corner because this looks bigger than just problems right now. Uh, th- this looks bigger than just some bad luck. This looks like something might be going on. If this number were to keep at this very low rate, it won't stay at zero forever. But if it stays very low, that's going to be indicative that something big is going on. So another player um, that I wanted to highlight in terms of BABIP is Johnny Riser. Johnny Riser is leading the team in BABIP. His average is 478 on balls in play. He has 12 hits um, and in 28 at bats. And so he's putting the ball into play a lot and successfully putting the ball into play. That can indicate some good contact, but also a BABIP that high and that high above the team average. And specifically, our kind of rule of thumb is about a third. That's that's more of a major league stat. But in reality, it's a good rule of thumb to say, all right, if it were a random draw, a ball that's hit into the field is going to be a hit uh, maybe about a third of the time. Now, of course, that doesn't hold constant quality of contact. That doesn't hold constant if it was a line drive or where it was or if it was a bunt or all of that nonsense. But it... It's a good rule of thumb. So Riser has had some significant luck in placing the ball well. Again, we're going to have to keep tabs on that. Just like if Humphrey stays this low, we're going to have to be worried about him. If Riser stays this high, we might have to throw out our assumption of luck and say, wow, Riser is actually putting the ball in really, really well. I will say I don't think this is luck because he has looked really good at the plate and his OPS right now is 1.181, which is downright Bonzian, as in Barry Bonds. So things to keep an eye on, but I don't think that's luck. I don't think it'll stay. His, his batting average on balls in play won't stay at 478 for his entire season. It will definitely come down, but he's benefited from a really, really good start that looks sustainable with a high OPS and a high um average as well. I will note that local hero Porter Brown has a BABIP of 4.409. His OPS is 0.995, so not a a ton of power there, but his average is 360. And so as a leadoff man, he is doing his job. His on-base percentage is 5.15. So Porter Brown uh, already gotten some accolades and off to a great start as a DH. Might get some time in the outfield depending on what is happening. Also, according to my data, four for four on stolen bases, which is just a ton of fun uh, and everything you would want out of a leadoff man. All right, looking at my time, I should probably move on to my final segment, which will probably be my shortest segment because it's more of an exploratory one, but I have a number which is plus 3%. That plus 3% is a number about TCU football. As I mentioned last week, I am going through and trying to get under the hood a little bit more with some football data that I have uh, acquired, the play-by-play data, and looking at not so much a singular metric that explains the entirety of the game of football, because the more I look into it, the more I feel like 
a single metric has trouble coming up with context and nuance and understanding. That's not to say something like S&P or the FEI or power rank or anything is inherently bad. And some of those do well against the spread. Although I do have my doubts that you just picking who's the better team off the top of your head wouldn't do as well against the spread. I don't know that I have an average line. Maybe I should just pick against the spread and put my money where my mouth is, but I'm in grad school, so I don't have any money. So I'm not going to do that. Anyway, back to what is important. I'm looking at a lot of context and strategy decisions. So the most recent thing that I'm looking at is trying to understand the difference and the connection between intent and execution in college football. So for instance, let's look at a play where a team lines up in an I formation and they hand the ball off to the running back to the left off tackle, basic power. Let's say he gets caught up at the line and should get tackled, but he hops to the right, makes a crazy move, gets very lucky and busts off down the right side of the field for a 60 yard touchdown. Now in all of our metrics, that play is going to be observationally equivalent to a pitch that was a 60-yard rushing touchdown where no one touched the running back. That's not necessarily a bad thing because there is some element of skill and execution that is linked with being able to sustain a broken play or a big play, but that is a little bit misleading in terms of what we're understanding with a football team. If we could come up with a way to understand context, strategy, intent, and execution better, then what we can do is say which teams are lucky and which teams are good. We'll probably find out that most lucky teams are actually good, but if we could separate to a degree luck and talent, that would be quite useful. So my first step in this is a post I'm currently working on, which I have about seven posts right now that I'm currently working on. I need to just sit down and finish one and let you all read them. But I'm looking at the percent of rushes and percent of passes in place and the success rate and the rushing and passing success rate. Now, this is unadjusted, and so these numbers don't sum up to one, but they are good for relative comparison for now. So we see that TCU is rushing 26.8% of the time, and they this includes all plays. This includes field goals, everything. So I need to adjust some of this, but this is raw. It's a fine start. 26.8% of the time, their rushing success rate was 20.9. Now their overall success rate was 21.3. And so they were worse at rushing than they were at passing, certainly. But they also passed disproportionately to their rushing. Um, so let me try and rephrase that uh, and do a little external processing. But if you think about a 45 degree line on a graph, right? So X equals one, Y equals one, X equals two, Y equals two, yada, yada, yada so on and so forth. Um, I think there's a there's there, there's some kind of magic line there that goes through the average rushing success rate and rush rate and divides four quadrants into half, right? So we'd end up having, I believe, six quadrants because it would only cut through the two quadrants. This is probably not good for a podcast. I'm going to pause here for a second and just try and reset where I'm going with this. So take a graph, four quadrants. On the axis, x-axis, you have rushing success rate. On the y-axis, you have rush rate. So how what percentage of plays did you rush? We get four quadrants by putting on an average national rush rate and an average national success rate for rushing. 
Teams in the top right of that graph are going to be teams who are good at rushing and rush a lot. Teams in the bottom right of that graph are going to be teams who are good at rushing but don't rush enough. Teams in the top left are going to be bad at rushing who rush a lot. Air Force, Navy, Georgia Southern were all in that category as outliers, whereas Army was really, really, really far to the right in the rushing success and rushing rate, really, really far out to the right. The fourth quadrant is the bottom left, which is you're bad at rushing and you don't really commit to rushing. Now, there's going to take some parsing out there because a lot of teams are clustered right in the middle. TCU um, was pretty close with that 26 and 20 to being on that 45 degree line, but they were still pretty below. So TCU actually rushed a little too much. I'm deriving all of this from the idea uh, that, that floats around in baseball. Um, if a player in baseball is stealing at a rate of you know, he's 12 for 13 on steals or some ridiculous rate. Uh, a couple years ago, somebody was, you know, like 21 for 22 of steals. And the theory is, if you're 21 of 22 on steals, you're not stealing enough. Because there's an acceptable variance, an acceptable amount, excuse me, of times getting caught stealing. And one time is well within that bound. In fact, if you could steal three more times and only get caught an additional one more time, that would be worth it. So there's some kind of elasticity on steals. I'm trying to impose that idea here and say there's some kind of elasticity on your strategy, on your run rate and your pass rate that is important. So that 0.3% is saying TCU was rushing at a success rate of 23%, but they were rushing at a rate of 26%. And so they're pushing themselves kind of too far that direction. And perhaps they could, by decreasing the number of rushes, they could increase overall their rushing success rate. But of course, that backs into the passing success rate and the fact that history is path dependent and college football is path dependent and the play before the play matters, certainly. So this isn't a perfect theory, but we're working on it just kind of saying, are you are you too good and not rushing enough or are you too bad and rushing too much and what bring that down i think in tcu's terms in terms of tcu's offense you can see agonizingly a couple times where tcu got a long play whether it be a run or a pass and then ran up to the line and ran a fake zone read which was really just a handoff and the running back seemingly ran into the guard and got tackled for a one yard loss and boom it's second and 11 you're in a worse situation and you have no even attempt to actually run a play. So I think TCU does that a lot. I, I think there's reasons why they do it. I think it's defensible, but I think it's unwise. And so I'm trying to categorize how often does TCU run? And when they're running too much, are they, should they be, or if they're, and how often they're running, should they be running more? Should they be running less? And my numbers here suggest that because they're rushing at a percentage higher than their success rate, they're actually rushing too much. This is a work in progress. This will get developed a lot more, of course. Thank you so much for bearing with me. I'm going to wrap up my podcast there. Today we talked about Quat uh, Noe and why he should be everyone's favorite TCU basketball player. We talked about baseball and batting average and balls in play and the role that luck is playing in some of our favorite players' hot starts and slow starts. And then I rambled for a little bit about football and strategy and some ideas I have that are works in process. I have broken my promise to you and gone over 30 minutes. So I'm going to wrap this podcast up now. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Stats of War podcast. I'm your host, Parker Fleming. You can find me at 
frogsofwar.com in the comments section. You can find me, my emails on that site. You can tweet me. I don't know how often I log into Twitter. I should probably log in more. Um, you can also tweet at the Frogs of War account and it'll find its way to me. Um, I appreciate your feedback. I appreciate you listening. Go read everything we have on the site at Frogs of War, especially as the basketball season is getting into the postseason. Baseball is hitting its stride and moving closer to conference play. And spring football is starting soon and Justin Rogers is cleared to play. So all sorts of great things are happening. Make sure you're following Frogs of War for everything Jamie and Melissa and everyone else writes. And I will... Look forward to getting some of your feedback this week, some of your questions this week, whatever you have to send my way, please do it. And then we'll talk next week. Thanks so much. Be well and go Frogs.